At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil. Capable of nothing but this Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher. As a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. We write our own gospel and live our own myth here at the Virtual Alexandria. Welcome to the audio version of Aeon Byte Live, episode 31. Raw, uncensored, and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. On this blasphemy, we had the honor to have back Anthony Peak to discuss non-human intelligences from his book, The Hidden Universe. We explore the idea of the Pleroma slash Kenoma and the others. Intelligent, self-motivated beings that are clearly not human in their origins. This included otherworldly visitors, from gods, angels, demons, and jinns, to ghosts, UFOs, and aliens. And of course, Archons. Beyond a brilliant researcher, Anthony has always been a friend of the Gnostics and a rare individual who gets them. Our interview certainly covered a lot about Gnosticism and so much more. Get ready for some bigly Gnosis. As a bonus for AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon... I'll provide the first four episodes of our podcast venture, Schrodinger's Diary. In these, Anthony shared his ideas on the daemon, is there life after death, 
Philip K. Dick, and more on the Gnostics. Really amazing content. Thanks for those of you who continually support. I can't do it without you. Please continue to help me grow this red pill cafeteria. We need Gnosis more than ever, and we've only just begun reaching those who need to wake up. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or guess and their unique insights, anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. But enough of my short drivel. Let us to our interview with Anthony Peake. The Empire Never Ended. Welcome, everybody, to, well, as I like to say, and our guests will relate to, as he quotes it, welcome to the desert of the real. This is AB Live, episode 31, and truly honored to have, again, as always, a friend of the Gnostics and one of the few people I think gets the Gnostics, and that is Anthony Peak. How are you doing, Anthony? Miguel, it's absolutely fantastic to be back talking to you. Your dulcet tones don't change. All that <laughs> tobacco and coffee is certainly working well with you. Yeah, a little bit older, a little bit older. But here we are again, as they say, and it's a, a great honor and always an honor. We've got Vance Sachi, the Moondog. How are you doing, Vance? Oh, I'm starting to wake up here. <laughs> I'm very excited yeah. to have Anthony on here. One of my favorite subjects, all these other entities from other places. Awesome, awesome. Good to have you here, as always. And yes, for the audience, we will be discussing Anthony's new book, The Hidden Universe, An Investigation into Non-Human Intelligences. As always, this show is live right now, but it will be available on YouTube afterwards, and I will have the audio version as well out in all of our channels, probably within 24 hours, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher, and all those good podcast providers. For a bonus for AB Prime members and uh, patrons at Patreon, I'm going to include the first four episodes of our old podcast that Anthony and I used to do, Schrodinger's Diary. So you'll get a bonus of like two hours with Anthony discusses his uh, really engaging and impactful ideas on the daemon, is there life after death, of course, Philip K. Dick and a whole bunch of other really great heresies. So definitely want to subscribe to that one if you can. So um, other than that, we'll get started. And of course, I will keep reminding people as, the, as they start going into the chat. As always, if you have a question for Vance, he will be using his uh, eye in the sky surveillance system, Uber Damon, for questions. So please, if you can... Um, uh, type in all caps or use many question marks. And when we get to the questions, Vance will feed them to Anthony. So other than that, Anthony, so tell us about the process of uh, why you decided to write this book, a little bit of a pivot from your last two books. Yeah, well, it was it's probably directly related to the, the previous two books in that I was continually coming across 
people who have, have experienced altered states of consciousness, lucid dreaming, out-of-body states, um, entheogen encounters, dimethyltryptamine, ayahuasca, and various other things. And I was really interested to discover that there's an awful lot of books being written on these things, but nobody's really pursued, not for many years anyway, the true nature of the entities that people experience in these altered states of consciousness. And I was particularly intrigued by the mounting evidence that on many occasions, these entities seem to be independent of the person that's perceiving them. Now, what I mean by this is the idea that if we argue that this is something to do with our own subconscious and somehow we're building up, bringing these things out from deep within ourselves, the question is, where are they coming from? You know, particularly if there are cases whereby the entities that are encountered seem to contradict what the person involved wants to do. Now, I'll give an example of this. Um, somebody that will be listening in here is Dr. Carl Smith, who is a researcher into altered states of consciousness. He's an expert on virtual reality and everything else. And Carl, if you're there, thanks for listening in. And a few um, about a year ago or so, Carl, we were working on a, an event together. We did a, an event. We recreated Plato's Cave um, in Dracolo's Caves in, in, in Kidderminster in the UK. And one of the things that Carl is doing is he's involved in a research project taking place at uh, Imperial College in London. And this research project is people volunteering to, to take dimethyltryptamine intravenously so they can then report back their experiences in altered states of consciousness. And the people, when people take DMT, they say they, they, they encounter what uh, Terence McKenna called machine elves, these entities, these little sprites, these little creatures that seem to be having fun with you. And Carl described to me how when he took the DMT, he found himself in the DMT cage, the DMT zone. And this entity comes over to him, looks him and eyeballs him and said, you shouldn't be doing it this way. This is the wrong way of doing it. Please don't do it this way. He then comes back down into consensual reality, the uh, canoma, as we'd like to call it, if we're using Gnostic terms here. And he comes back into the canoma from the pleroma and uh, or in the liminal places between the canoma and the pleroma. And he then a week later or so, um, he then takes the, the, the substance again, finds himself in the same location and the very same entity comes over and says, I told you last time, you shouldn't be doing this this way. Now, this to me was intriguing because this is not what Cole wanted to hear. It's not what the researchers want to hear, but self-evidently, this is what the entity wanted to get across to him. So it stimulated me to think, well, come on, what's your next book going to be about? Now, I'd always been interested in the writings of people like Jacques Vallée, um, and, and other individuals, um, Project Trojan Horse by John Keel. These are books that are written on ufology, but they're writing ufology from a very different viewpoint. They're writing ufology from the idea that somehow these entities are in internal to ourselves and that they can be manifest under certain circumstances. And they're actually much closer related to our own psychology than, than we genuinely believe them to be. You know, they're not alien entities coming from the Pleiades or whatever, whatever else they're coming from, um, uh, Eppleson or Danny or wherever, these creatures seem to be related to us and they seem to have been around since year dot. But it was a series of events that took place with my own mother when um, my mother one day reported to me that she said that she was seeing little creatures, little children that were singing to her. 
And before then, she'd had a very strange encounter with what I can only describe as being a grey in a straight, in a state of hypnagogia and in a state of sleep paralysis, where she described this creature in her bedroom coming round the door with huge black eyes, two holes for a nose and a slit for a mouth. And the creature looked at her and dodged back in the middle of the night. She then starts reporting she's seeing these little creatures around her. Now, I immediately was aware of what this could be. Um, my writings, I've touched upon something called Charles Bonnet syndrome in the past. And to me, this was classic evidence of Charles Bonnet syndrome. But yet again, these creatures seem to be independent of my mother. And I then managed to get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's with my mother. So I decided I need to look into this more. There is something far more mysterious going on here than just the simple idea. And that is the book, uh, The Hidden Universe. And that was the background and the motivation for writing it. Yeah, it's wonderful. As I told you, I really I enjoyed it a lot. It was a great read. And as I've, uh, what I've always admired about your work is like very much like Philip K. Dick or Carl Jung. You saw the sort of innovations that the Gnostics had in providing alternative models of reality 2,000 years ago and how these uh, models are still relevant today, how they really they hit upon something. And as you said, you start your book with... Uh, the idea of the kenoma and the pleroma with the horus in between. And as again, as you provide in your book, the, the kenoma simply means emptiness. And like the Buddhists thousands of years ago, the Gnostics saw the universe as basically uh, nothingness, which science has supported today. Oh, absolutely. And this, was, this is the thing that all through my writing, and you'll know this probably more than anybody else, is that my writing has always had this, this dichotomy, this dynamic, this... Um, I don't know what we do, a dialectic, I suppose, if we want to put sort of Marxist analysis on it, <laughs> the dialectic of the idea that there is, we can do the science and we can look into the science and I will always make my starting point the point the science. Because as Marquette Mar Marcello Trui once said, you know, um, extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. And I, I tend to try to do the science as best I can before I start going off into the, the strangeness. But all through my writing, there's also this fascination with Gnosticism, the fascination that this reality, whatever it may be, seems to be in some way false. Either it's a facsimile or it's a recreation of something else. Um, I'm these days wary of using the term simulation because the word simulation implies that it is a copy of something else. But I think it's far more embedded than that. And the Gnostics, you know, in the first century AD, and if you take back Gnosticism to its roots and you take it back to uh, Greek philosophy and the pre-Socratics and the, the writings of Plato and the idea of Plato's cave and the analogy of Plato's cave. Clearly, there is something of deep significance here that only these days are we starting to really appreciate because it is only in the last 20 years or so that we have been able to recreate virtual realities, computer simulation, virtual realities that are nearly as believable as this. Now, you know, I, 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 I play with virtual reality quite a lot, you know, I have a virtual reality headset and everything. And it always amazes me how believable these worlds are. And when you spend time in them, you sometimes take time to acclimatize back into this world. Now, interestingly enough, only yesterday, um, I was speaking to a lady who is the lady who is the, the lady behind Contact in the Desert, the big event in California that I was supposed to be speaking at this summer. And she'd not come across Second Life before. So I took her over to Second Life and showed her what Second Life was about. 
And there was this sudden realization of suddenly, my word, there are worlds within worlds here that you can exist within. And of course, that's what the Gnostics said. They said that this is, this is a creation of Yaldabaoth. This is the fullness, is the reality behind this reality. The Pleroma is the real reality, the place of Plato's forms, if we want to use a, a second, uh, another term for this. And this is a simulation that we are within. And the entities, I think, are part of this simulation or part of another simulation that can break through into this one. And this is, this is where I go with the book. So you can take the book on two levels. You can take it on the esoteric, mystic, mystical side of the book, which I'm quite happy to go to. But I also do the science as well. And I think I'm one of the few writers that's doing this or trying to do this and trying to bridge the gaps between. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's great that you, again, you're mixing in myth, science, sound science, studies, uh, scientific studies and all that. And do a great job. It's uh, it's not that long of a read, but it's so packed with gnosis, as I like to say. It's uh, it's mind be- reality bending, I'd like to say. And oh, for the audience, I see now you are beginning to really pack it in in the in the chat room. So again, if you have a question, please write it in caps or put many question marks. We will try to get to them to the best of our ability. I think you were talking about second life events. You like to play second life, second life too. Yeah, a while ago, I like all that virtual reality stuff. Um, there was a thing called Active Worlds years ago that I did a lot of work in. Good deal, good deal. So, Anthony, I think uh, the um, one of your uh, central ideas, and I loved it, and uh, you, as you say, you lean on the work of Mark Stavish on his great book, mm-hmm. Egregores, and he was, he was a past guest in this book, and I think it's a, it's a game changer because it really... Uh, it's a completely different paradigm than how we're used to uh, dealing with the other or uh, metaphysical entities. As uh, Mark Wright and you quote, uh, an egregore is an occult, autonomous, psychic entity composed of and influencing the thoughts of a group of people. So uh, maybe you could expand a little bit more on your, or your idea and your, your own innovation, which you call the egregorial. Yeah, it's that Mark. Mark and I have, have chatted on quite a few occasions. I'm a huge admirer of yeah. Mark, not only his book on egregores, but also his book on lucid dreaming and out of body experiences. Mm-hmm. He is a fascinating guy, and funnily enough, um, I'm working with um, a small group of individuals at the moment in terms of writing a series of academic papers. And in one of our chats, yes, yesterday or the day before, we were discussing contacting Mark and involving him in some way in the work we're doing because we think he's of such profound importance in all this. But what I'm interested in is, can the human mind create the egregores? And I use two terms, I use egregore and egregorial. And I I make a subtle difference here. As Mark would argue, um, an egregore is something that any group of individuals, when they are together and they share certain ideals, certain thoughts and everything else, it seems that they create something bigger than themselves. There seems to be an additional something that comes within the group. Now, in this, I'm reminded of the research in the late 19th century by a French sociologist called Le Bon, who, who wrote a, a fascinating book on, on the mass psychology of crowds and the idea of how when a crowd of people get together, there seems to be something that is created greater than them. And as, as Mark Davis would argue, you know, that things such as national socialism, Nazism, fascism, all these things all become greater 
as a force for good or a force for evil. But I'm more interested in the smaller aspects of this. Can a small group of people create something greater than themselves, which has independence of them? Now, um, myself and um, uh, a young anthropologist called Samantha Treasure and uh, an engineer, um, an engineering graduate called Mariam Abadi, were thinking of cre recreating something that took place um, back in 1972 called the Toronto Experiment, where a group of researchers um, created an entity, a ghost, for want of a better term, called Philip, whereby they gave this Philip character a history, a background, and a life almost, whereby they gave him a background story that he was a Catholic aristocrat living in the 17th century. He fell in love with, with, another, with a girl. He was hurt in love and everything else as well. And then after creating this, they then managed to manifest this entity using a Ouija board. Now, it seems that the entity had taken control almost, that it had pulled itself away and had become something more real. Now, for me, this is intriguing because if you read the work of Alexander David Neal, who was a Belgian um, lady, Bel French-Belgian lady, who in the turn of the century till the 1920s took herself off to Tibet. Her husband was wealthy and they had this open relationship. So she goes off to Tibet and he pays all her money. And she has all this fantastic time in Tibet. And while she was there, she became fascinated by Tibetan magic, which of course I am because I'm fascinated by the Bon tradition about dream yoga, how they work. But she manifested, she worked with this and created what is known as a tulpa. And a tulpa is a thought form that has independence of people. And she created her little group. They created a tiny little Buddhist monk. And it was manifest in three-dimensional pleuromic reality, um, in, in the canomic reality external to ourselves. And this creature manifested itself and initially was, was at their will. It was at their beck and call. It did what they expected it to do because they were creating it. But then it started to develop an independence of itself. And it started to get malevolent and started to be far more nasty. And in the end, they had to all literally exercise it from themselves. Now, again, one of my, one of my friends that sadly died um, about 18 months ago is a very famous British um, theatre producer called Brian Murray. And Brian became a very good friend of mine after reading a couple of my books and we're working we were working together on um, getting a play by JB Priestley produced but that's an aside story now but Braham explains in one of his books anything that can happen anything that can go wrong will go wrong which is a wonderful read by the by the way if you get the opportunity to read this he knows everybody he knows everybody in the theatrical world you know it's just incredible who I don't think there's anybody he didn't know um, but effectively in this he describes at one time, when he was, he had been asked to bring this, uh, to meet this, this guy who was a Danish aristocrat and somebody who was known in occult circles. And this guy comes over and he's staying in Brahms flat and a guy called Arnold Hernigstadt. And while they were there, they, they got discussing about the idea of the nature of evil, the nature of the beast. And they were particularly talking about the beast in the fairy stories. And Arnold turns around, he said, the beast still exists. It is here. And he pointed at a chair opposite them. 
And Brahim describes in the book, and he described it to me, and he said, suddenly this creature appears in the chair, and it's manifest. And he said it looked like the gorgon, it had, um, ten, it had snakes for her, and it, and it leered at him, looked at him and leered at him, and then started to shapeshift really rapidly, and then disappeared. Now, as Brahim said to me, he said that was real. He said it had to be real because it not only was an hallucination in, in consensual reality that I saw, but it was created by somebody else and manifested in my mind. Now, he said he could have hypnotized me, but even if he did, he still created an hallucination that seemed to have independence of both of us. Now, again, I'm fascinated by hallucinations. In the book, I have a section on hallucinations, particularly because there were two hallucinations taking place there. There was the hallucination of what Graham saw, but there was also the hallucination of taking out the image of the chair. Because remember, when you see an hallucination like that, you not only see the hallucination, but the hallucination obscures your field of vision. So you cannot see part of reality in order to accommodate the hallucination. Now, again, Brahm said this being was independent. So again, did we have an egregore being created here that was both created by Arnold Herningstadt, was perceived by Brahm, but was also there in reality? Now, from this, I then became intrigued about the true nature of what this means. And I, I drilled right back into, and I was particularly interested in the writings of the Gospel of the Book of Enoch. And the way in which the Book of Enoch, which we know this is very much within the whole remit of Gnosticism, how the Book of Enoch describes how the watchers appeared from uh, down on Mount Hermon and how they were these entities that came from somewhere else. And of course, the word watcher is, and you look at it in the Greek, it's egregore, it's egregorial. So again, we have these. And of course, what is more intriguing here is the book of Enoch is, 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 an, is an apocryphal gospel. It didn't actually get into our gospels, but it is part of the Gnostic tradition. And indeed, it is gospel within the Eritrean church and within the, 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 um, the uh, um, Ethiopian church. And if you look at this, how it came through, you then get this whole stream of Enochian magic and how Enochian magic comes through. And you get Enochian magic happening in terms of the writings and the work of, um, of D, Dr. D, and the work he did with Kelly and how he was manifesting entities, Uriel and various other individuals, which then carries straight through to the work of Elisa Crowley. And Crowley's creations of Lamb and his creation of his holy higher, higher angel, as he called it. You know, what, what does this mean? It seems that this has been known for an awful long time, but it's been hidden. It has been literally occulted. It's been hidden away. And what I'm saying is it's time now that we start thinking about these things scientifically, because we know in quantum physics that the act of observation or the act of measurement collapses a waveform, which is a wave of potentiality into an actuality, into a point particle. So could it be that by the act of observation, we can bring into this, this into the Kenoma entities that need us to exist and in this, I'm reminded of the work of, of Paul Eno, who is an American research, paranormal researcher, 
And he has a name for these entities. He calls them the, um, the uh, parasites. And I'm reminded here, and I, I then I tend to go off on these, these, these tangents of ideas. But if you then start looking into the Islamic tradition and the Islamic tradition of the jinn, we then find something very interesting. Because if you read the Quran and you read the other doctrines, particularly the areas of the Sufis, and of course we know the Sufis are Gnostic, just like the Kabbalists were Gnostic and like the Gnostics were Gnostic. And what do the Sufis say? They say that the jinn are created out of smokeless fire. Smokeless fire, what can that be? Well, it could be plasma. And this is exactly what um, and, um, various writers are saying you know, here, that plasma is another form of energy. It's another form of matter. And could this be what smokeless fire is? Because the jinn seem to have very similar elements of these entities that come through. In the book, I have large sections on the writings of Henri Corbin, the, the French Sufi writer. And some of his work, you read Corbin and you read his work and Surabindi and the, the writings he did about the true nature of reality. And suddenly you go, my God, the Sufis have got it. The Sufis had it, man. You know, really, they, they had the area of the, the area of overlap between the Pleroma and the Canoma, how this. Looks like we lost Anthony. Are you there, Vance? Are you frozen? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, here he comes. All I right. think he'll be back. Okay. Anthony, there, we, Anthony, I can't if you can hear us. Uh, yeah, we lost you for a second. <laughs> the arc and uh, uh, Anthony got too close to the truth. <laughs> yeah. No, I was doing a show very recently with 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 um, how it went. And they said it's never happened before. And it starts to talk about these things. Discuss it. We discuss the archons in a kind of jokey way, but it happens far too often. And Miguel and I used to do the show regularly. It was a running joke. It really was a running joke. Every time. And I, my other produces my show as well, um, uh, Dear Nunez. Dear and I do our regular show, and we also have now the Archons. We, we wait for the Archon attacks. You know, it just seems to happen. It's more than coincidence. Yeah. It's a little bit about the background of where we're going with. Now, myself and, and Sam Treasure, on the other hand, we're also taking the route of a term you used before, the Uber Daemon. The idea of the way in which we can bring in alternate versions of our service reality concept is again completely gnostic but there's the uber daemon and then there's the codemon something i'm thinking about now which is the and we can bring that in as well i still by the way you're looking as if i've gone yeah you're uh, it says here your network bandwidth is low if it continues you might just have to turn off your video and do audio that usually fixes things so uh we'll play it by ear but yes uh, the archons had to decide to make an appearance because anthony peaks in the house 
It is what it is. But um, yeah, your book, uh, after I finished your book, I was like looking around and you get that feeling, man, reality is not reality. And it is a busy universe out there. And I wanted to share a story with you, Anthony, before we get to audience questions. Uh, years ago, before I even knew of egregores, I used to do ghost hunting here in Chicago. And I would go to like places where like Al Capone had his offices deep and underneath. <laughs> you went there? <laughs> yes, yes. And we was would, Geraldo there? <laughs> Remember that? Exactly. No, we didn't go there. It was we office, but we take our divining rods and all our equipment, and we get a group of people, and they pay us, and we go under there. And then we do these again with the divining rod. We'd see the temperature go down, which means that the entities were taking energy, and some we'd ask somebody would get a feeling like, oh, my grandmother's here. And, and I did this every day. I mean, it was normal. And, and with the divining rod, I'd ask a question. Ask a question that only your grandmother would know. And we'd get it right. And they'd have these conversations with her grandmother or friend or whatever it is. And I would be thinking, even before I knew it, I said, this is suspicious. I don't think your grandmother is talking from heaven or the other way. I have a feeling that we've all drawn our energy and belief and that one person picked up all this electromagnetic energy, and this person now knows, and basically we've created an entity that it's alive, it's independent, or it's around us. And night after night, we were creating egregores deep under in these basements in the dark. So I certainly saw it for true, for factual truth. But Anthony, we were creating egregores, these thought forms, but isn't that a little bit different than an egregorial? Because I think an egregorial is still independent, although we perhaps give it our cultural surrounding, our, our energy, so that it could become independent and interactive with us. Is that the difference, Anthony? Yeah, in effect. And one of the things that Mariam and Sam and myself are wanting to do is to see if we can, we can prove this under controlled conditions as to whether collective thoughts can manifest independence. Now, this means in effect that the, the relationship between us and them, whatever they are, is far more intertwined than, than we'd, we'd hitherto believe. And I think that the whole egregorial model works as a, a superb explanator of your experiences. For instance, I'm, when you were talking there, I was thinking poltergeist activity, you know, poltergeist activity seems to be created usually by a younger person that's involved. We then have disassociative personality syndrome, where people's personalities seem to split as if they create alternate personalities. But also the way in which um, cultural things become independent of ourselves as well. I'm reminded, for instance, and it's one of the things I've never mentioned this before, I don't think in interviews before, but one of the things that really intrigues me is in quantum physics how it is that if you look at the history of quantum physics, the amount of times that a group of scientists had an almost desperation said there should be a subatomic particle here, and they find it. For instance, there was a classic case, there's a very famous quantum physicist called E.E. E. Rabi, and when they were trying to find the muon, they, 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 they were failing, they, they, and they, but they were thinking about it. And then one day the muon just appears and Rabbi jokingly said, who ordered that? You know, the idea is as if quantum physics, what is happening is we are creating quantum physics as we go along. And is that why quantum physics has got so bizarre now? 
But what is happening is we are thinking, well, what's the solution to mass within things? Oh, it's the Higgs boson. So we collectively all think about the Higgs boson and suddenly the Higgs boson comes into existence. But we know that these subatomic particles come, come from the, the, the quantum, they just come up for a billionth of a second and go back again. It's as if they're being drawn into this reality by our collective consciousness in some way. And of course, this is what Jung would argue. And of course, we know that Jung was incredibly Gnostic in his worldview. And it's the idea that we are far more, our minds are far more powerful than we believe. You know, there is no duality. There is only mind. There is only consciousness. And consciousness creates the external reality we perceive by the act of perception. Now, this is not, I'm not trying to be non-scientific here, but the evidence is powerful. Again, going back to the fact all subatomic particles, before they are measured or seen, are literally a statistical wave whereby that subatomic particle will be found in one location or the other. This is proven time and time again by something called the twin slit experiment. It is proven within the twin slit experiment that if subatomic particles are observed or watched, they are point particles. If they are not observed or watched, they are waves of probability. This isn't wacky stuff. This is the real deal, you know. And what we need to do is to start bringing the occult factors into this and saying, well, what have the Gnostics been telling us? What are the occult people been telling us? And what is science telling us? But at the moment, everybody's in their silos. Nobody's talking to each other because they're too scared. Because they're too scared to talk to each other because tenure, academic tenure, they can't talk about these kind of things anymore. And it drives me crazy. And it means I'm in the, I'm in the middle of a bridge and people on both sides are lobbing stones at me. So I'm going, oh, well, fair enough. I'll be right in the end. <laughs> you, <laughs> yes, yes, you will be, and you are right now. And unfortunately, yeah, when you get into these liminal positions, you will get demonized as so many others have. So, but uh, Vance, uh, do you have a question for Anthony or anybody in the ch any questions from the chat you would like to share? Yeah, we got a couple of questions. I've got one, Anthony. Um, dream worlds and dreams. Uh, that's another example of um, a phenomenon in consciousness where you can see brand new people you've never seen before, brand new places and so forth. And so I wonder what the relationship of dreams is to egregores, egregorials, and so yeah. forth. Dream, dreams to me, dreams are part of the egregorial in the same way that egregores as individual, individuated parts of the egregorial are manifest. I, I work closely with a lot of people who lucid dream and people who have out-of-the-body experiences. And I've got case after case of lucid dreamers who have had experiences whereby they have met somebody in a lucid dream state and then subsequently met them in consensual reality. Case after case, this is not unusual. It is similar when people go into dream states, particularly lucid dreamers who can control to a degree their dream state, can go back to the same place and will explore that place in exactly the same way as a lucid dreamer does. Now, again, I was um, on Second Life this week, earlier this week, with a lucid dreamer who regularly lucid dreams. And her comments were quite precise. She said, this is just like a lucid dream. It is so similar. So clearly it is a created, fabricated world that you are fabricating. And of course, Jung would argue this. 
Jung would argue that you can create from the darkness of your subconscious these, these places that we visit. Now, dreams are fascinating. Lucid dreams are fascinating. Out-of-body experiences, what's the similarity or differences between out-of-body experiences and lucid dreaming? What's the differences with remote viewing? Are they all part of the same continuum? I believe they are. I believe they are elements of the, the deeper and deeper realities that you drill within. And this is another area of my inquiry, and it is so exciting. So Vance, that was a superb question. Really, really good. Oh, thanks. Um, we got lots of other questions here. Um, uh, uh, Dragoron wants to know if you've heard of Stuart Hameroff and his work on microtubules and effects with DMT. Yeah. Yeah, Stuart Hammerhoff and um, uh, Roger Penrose, it, the or or orchestrated objective reduction. Um, yes, in fact, I had a long chat with Stuart Hammerhoff around about three years ago in London about the similarities between his model and my own. I've been fascinated by the implications of ORC OR, and I've written about it extensively, specifically in my book, uh, The Infinite Minefield uh, and Opening the Doors of Perception. Because Hammerhoff is arguing that, or Hammerhoff and Penrose argue that within the structures of the brain, indeed within the structures of the neurons themselves, are tiny, tiny little things of tubulin called tube, uh, microtubules. And these microtubules are so small and they give off light. They give off minute pulses of light, which means they can create interference patterns. On top of that, they are so small that quantum effects have effects with them so this is an interface between the quantum world and our life of thought so if the microtubules are, are interfacing with a deeper level of reality is this where consciousness comes in and this is what hammerhoff argues because hammerhoff is um is professor of anesthesiology at the university of i think arizona and penrose was the the the, the rouse ball professor of maths at the university of cambridge the two of them are very very intelligent guys and Hammerhoff has been fascinated as to what happens when individuals take when individuals take an, 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 an anesthetic because consciousness and awareness doesn't just it disappears it goes somewhere else it's switched off and he believes this is because our interface with the greater reality what one would argue is the zero point field of information gets switched off and we go we cease to be we cease to function now, I've taken that much further, and it's sad that Stuart didn't come back to me because I've now taken this into the areas of Alzheimer's. Because when individuals get Alzheimer's, what happens is things called amyloid plaques destroy the, the tubulin structures within the neurons. So it is literally the amyloid plaques with somebody with Alzheimer's, their, their communication channels with the inner reality are being destroyed. And this is why they, they start to lose the, they start to fade away. It's not because they're dying. It's because they're, it's like a radio receiver and the valves are being destroyed. And because the valves are being destroyed, you can no, no longer pick up the radio waves. But I think what is more intriguing here is my research tells me that these individuals, when they, they, they start to come into Alzheimer's, they start to see egregorials all over the place. They start to see them through Charles Bonnet syndrome. Charles Bonnet syndrome manifests as it did with my mother. And suddenly they're seeing these creatures in the book. I have a whole section on this. But what is even more intriguing is I can then extrapolate that to children. 
because children, when they have autism, they see creatures, they see things that other people don't see. And why is this? Simple. It's because the neurons of the brain are not myelinated. Myelination, which is the insulation on the neurons, only starts when the child gets to five, six or seven. And on top of that, the corpus callosum, which is the, the, the muscular body that holds together the two type sides of the brain, also is not fully developed. So at the beginning of life and at the end of life, you start to perceive the egregorial far greater. And this is one of the central theses of the book. We need to pursue this more. We need to be looking into these in greater detail and listen to what these people are telling us. There's a friend of mine, Maggie Latorell, who's written a book called The Gift of Alzheimer's, which is a narrative of her mother's decline into Alzheimer's. The things that Maggie's mother was perceiving and seeing, she became telepathic. She was having out-of-the-body experiences. She was seeing entities all the time. She was aware of what Maggie was thinking. You know, this is unbelievable. And Hannah Hoff and Penrose, I know I'm a nobody. I know I'm just this nobody guy that's, you know, that's got, you know, that's just nobody. They need to listen to me, not because I'm important, but I really am joining the dots here. You know, stop being siloed. Stop pretending that you don't want to talk to people about other things, because it's only by talking to people that you, we really will proceed. Off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not a nobody to us, that's for sure. Uh, one of my favorite guests. Uh, I love this type of thing, as as Miguel knows. Oh, yeah. uh, but, uh, we had another question here. Oh, about Ouija boards. And uh, can you, uh, what can you say about Ouija boards and the entities that seem to come, you know, when a group of people get around the board? Is there a distinction between, the, you know, a board spirit or an egregore? Or how, how does that interact? I think, I don't know yet, but this is, this is the work that, that Mariam and myself and Sam is going to be doing is to try and find out exactly what these entities are. Now, there is an argument to say in a, in a, in a Ouija board, there's the argument to say that it's kind of subliminal muscular movements. And that's why you move because you're subliminally doing it. When I was a kid and we used to play Ouija, you know, sometimes you'd think that a friend was pushing it, but sometimes you did get strange effects that you cannot describe. It was as if, again, the collective group, because everybody's thinking collectively again. You know, it's unusual for a group of people to just concentrate on their fingers placed on the top of a glass. It's unusual to have that kind of focus of intention. And I think that's when the glass starts to move. And that's when the, um, the waveform, if I want to use the quantum physics analogy, the waveform of the egregore, the statistical waveform of the egregore gets reduced down by the act of concentration of a group of people into a particle, which it then can then grow and manifest. Now, again, this is, is a powerful tool for understanding how these work, because again, the reminder of the Philip experiment in 1972 shows that this can be done. Now, it, it's the question of where does the information come from, though? Because when these entities manifest, they seem to again have independence of us in one way or another. They seem to have independent motivations of us. Is it because we are drawing up information from the zero point field, from the Akashic field? I wrote a book a few years ago with Professor Irvin Laszlo on this. And the idea that the Akashic field is an information field, it's to do with zero point energy. And I haven't got time to go into the physics of this, but the latest research is suggesting that energy, it, it, information itself is physical. 
If information is physical, it means it has physical reality in three-dimensional space. It then means that our model of the universe is made up of information, or as David Bohm would say, information, Professor David Bohm. It's information. This literally means it's informed. It's informing itself. And it's bringing up information from fields of, of, of information that we have access to do when we're in altered states of consciousness. And these fields of information bring themselves in and carry with them information from elsewhere. Now, this is maybe how past life regression takes place. We attune into the collective unconsciousness of mankind and in doing so, draw up the information and create a story based upon what was a real story of somebody else's life. You know, this model is very, very powerful. It, it is powerful. It is a powerful explanator of so many experiences. Wow, great stuff. Vince, do you have more questions? Because I know this is you have a lot of passion about this intersection of science and mysticism. So, Or from the oh, audience, yeah. this is a lot of fun. I know it. Um, I love the subject. Uh, someone thinks Anthony gives channelers a hard time in, in the chat room here. And yeah, so um, he's wondering why you do that um, if we are all one mind, um, if we are all okay, belong to channelers, one mind. Right. Channelers are interesting. If you listen to one channeler and the entity they channel, that entity never ever mentions the other entities that other people are channeling. Have you noticed it's only my channeled entity that is the one that has access to everything. Give me your money and I'll access all this information for you from my entity. But if one of those entities comes back and says, while I was in that state, I came across Joe Bloggs's entity over here and Fred's entity over here, but that never, ever happens. All they want to do is take your money from you. But if these guys were giving it for free, and of course their argument is, well, no, we've got to live. Well, yeah, sure you have. But if one of these entities came out with one bit of information that was useful, just anything that's useful rather than right. philosophy and waffle, you know, how many of these entities said that COVID-19 was going to happen? Or how to I rest it. my case. I rest <laughs> my case. You know, come on. If they know things that we don't know, they should be able to tell us. They should be able to turn around and say, there's a subatomic particle you haven't discovered, and then we find it. If they're from pl the Pleiades and, and the ascended masters and, you know, 7,000-year-old Atlantean princes, they should have information we don't know. But they don't. They just waffle the same crap. Just like television channels. <laughs> do I believe that we can attune into great, greater informational fields? Yes, I do. Do I believe that all these people are charlatans? No, I don't. They genuinely believe. But these entities really need to come up and give us something solid rather than just nonsense. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not drawing up information. But to me, there are too many of these charlatans out there who are destroying it for serious people. Serious people who are doing serious academic research in this. And every time one of these, one of these people come up and make these nonsensical statements, the, 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 um, the skeptics love it. They absolutely love it. And they tar all of us with this brush. And it drives me crazy. You know, they've got to stop it. Just, just stop it, for God's sake. You know, um, let us do proper research. If you can channel these entities, like, for instance, if you can get out of your body automatically and you can go around the corner and bring back information, that's great. Do it in laboratory conditions to prove it. Nobody's ever done that. Nobody ever does. They all claim they can do it, but then something happens when they can't do it under laboratory conditions. Do I believe these things happen? Yes. Do I believe they can do it 
automatically know. I have people I know who have profound out-of-body experiences that are veridical and they bring back information, but they will readily admit they can't do it just like that. Just like good mediums, I believe there are mediums out there and I think some of them are excellent. The good mediums can't control it to the extent that the stage mediums who just stand there and do it and get paid for it. You know, that's my opinion. That's my opinion. Oh, very good. Um, Miguel, we have, uh, you want to do more questions? I yes, I got a couple please do. Yeah. Well, I got a question, a couple of questions. Well, have you heard of this author? Have you heard of that offer? Uh, Anthony, are you interested in uh, those kind of questions? Yeah, 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 no, fine. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, Williamson's Bainbridge. You ever hear of that? Guy? Name rings the bell, but that's as far as it goes. Okay. Um, Vincent Bridges or Dan Winters? Exploring nope. quantum physics within Enochian magic? No, but that would be very interesting to look at the angle on that. Now, that could be quite an interesting point. Um, if anybody wants to contact me on Facebook or Instagram with some suggestions on this, that's really great. You know, and if these guys are willing to want to work with me, that's even better. You know, it'd be really, really superb. Just like my, my thing just before, if there are people out there that can get out of your body at will, and you can go into a next room, bring back a six-digit digit number and come back, I want to hear from you because that will prove it. You know, I'm not dissing you guys. All I'm saying is, as Truy said, extreme, um, extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. And if we can prove this, we'll blow it. We'll blow up. We're into a new paradigm. How about um, uh, sleep paralysis? Someone had a question about that. The, um... Sleep paralysis, or, a.k.a. REM intrusion. Um, what happens in sleep paralysis? It's a very, very fascinating phenomenon. What takes place is that when we are sleeping, we enact our dream, we move around and enact our dreams. That could be very dangerous. Damage ourselves, or we could damage somebody who sleeps. What the body does is it brings about a form of paralysis whereby you cannot move. Now, sometimes people will become semi-awake in these circumstances, and when they do, they feel they cannot move. They have a sensation that somebody's sitting on their chest. They just feel trapped. Yeah. But what is intriguing in this is that throughout history, people describe the same entity. It's called the hag. You will see either an old woman or a person in a cowl, wearing a, like a monk. And it will normally be in profile. It will normally be in the corner of the bedroom or it will look at you. Now, what I think is taking place here is that Rather like we were discussing liminal states between wake and sleep. In my book, The Out-of-Body Experience, I discuss this as well. It's, it's, you are experiencing almost the pleroma or the area between the locations in, in a state that's called hypnagogic imagery. Now, hypnagogic imagery is when it takes place as you're dropping off to sleep. And when you're waking up, it's called hypnotic imagery. Now, when you are in these states, this is when... The, the, the out-of-body experience takes place. It's when lucid dreaming takes place. And people can train themselves to stay in these states. I mean, I'm working with a couple of um, Austrian researchers, Dr. Dr. Engelbert Winkler and Dr. Dirk Prokol, who have invented a machine called the hypnagogic light experience. And this machine puts people into these states automatically by using um, stroboscopic light and intensities of light. It is an incredibly powerful machine. Had we been at the event 
in California in the end of May, we were going to be bringing two or three of these machines with us um, to show people. What we're planning to do is recreate Plato's cave in later on this year or spring of next year in the cave that Plato, that the academics believe that Plato placed thing. And we're going to have these machines with us together with some of the machines that Carl has got in terms of, and everything else as well. So we're going to try and do this because what we want to do is to show to people how you can move into liminal states and how it is that what we think is consensual reality is not quite what it seems. But sleep paralysis is fascinating, but also terrifying. Also something that has, has been experienced it, it's across all cultures and it's been for, forever in time. It's a genuine thing. Yeah, very good. I think we're having some network troubles with the, uh, can you still hear us, Anthony? I can, yes, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, the video's frozen, but I can still hear you. Your voice um, is coming through. You yeah, know, uh, um, real quick, your friend Sam Treasure is uh, in the chat. Uh, I told, I told her if she wants a question or a comment to let us know. But uh, oh, good. So far, oh, nothing. Good. But she's there. She made herself available. Okay. So, but Vance, keep it going. Yeah. Um. You know, I always had the thought that. Uh, oh, I want to say something else. In in terms of the hag. Um, I was in a seminar one time and uh, part of the seminar, everybody got together and looked at each other and we were supposed to just look at the partner's face for a long time, just totally concentrate. Oh, now the archons have gotten Vance. Have they got me still? Or have you got no, me? no, you're still coming clear. I guess. Um, yeah, because this, this that I had it. Am I coming through again? Yeah, yes. Yeah, you, you yes. Were just, it got cut off. You were staring at people's faces. Yeah. yeah. And my partner was this gal I had a crush on for a long time, right? We weren't going out, <laughs> but um, we were kind of like having near misses. She liked me. I liked her. But anyway, I sat there, and we looked at each other's faces, and her face turned into the hag. It was so horrible because I thought this gal was so cute and everything that to have somebody like that turn into a hag. What do you think happened there? <laughs> it, it, to me, there's, there's an old technique called scrying and scrying is, is looking into a mirror under certain circumstances and staring at your own face or staring within the mist behind the mirror. And in doing so, you start to see things that are different. Now, again, this phenomenon is interesting. This staring at each other is some that intrigues me it's something i desperately need to try because i've also read that if you can actually stir at each other for a long time and then almost link a different level you can then try and try lucid dreaming and try and see if you encounter each other in lucid dreaming but your point here is a different one it's 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 um there is to watch the term it, it's 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 a form of deja it's not deja, oh, I can't think what it's called now, but it's like deja vu. But it's seeing something that you're always used to seeing in a different way. Um, I can't think what the technical term is now. And you do it, if you stir at your own reflection, you start to notice things that you don't notice before. And I think what happened there was the overlay of the hag was quite interesting, as if you were kind of scrying something different now, again, I know, for instance, that um, uh, D, Dr. D did this when he was applying areas of, of, of Enochian magic. He was doing scrying all the time. And I know that uh, Kelly, his associate, 
was a known scryer, and this is what he was doing. And he was trying to bring the egregorial entities in to discover there was a book, I think the book of Sogon, I think they wanted to translate or they wanted to understand. And they brought through the entities like Uriel and everybody else. And then they developed the Enochian magic, the Enochian alphabet, which then became the basis of the work that Alistair Crowley did at Bolskin Manor. And when he was down at Thelema, down in, um, in Cefalo, down in, um, in Sicily, they were able to reproduce these, these things. And it's to do with stirring. And it's to do with just stirring at anything like the, the, the psychomantium, which the ancient Greeks used to use, which, again, myself and Mariam were talking about yesterday. Creating the psychomantium. Uh, I know that um, Moody, the uh, near-death experience writer, he's been working with the psychomantium for some time as well. And that's looking, and again, it's looking into water and, and, and things and looking into a water surface. It's the same principle as when people look into a crystal ball. It's as if the mind starts to go into another level of perception. And in doing so, they see through this reality into the reality behind the reality. I'm not saying they're seeing the pleroma, but they are seeing the overlap areas. Um, okay. Yeah. Wow. yeah, thanks. Yeah, multiple realities too. You know, all these, and I, I, sometimes I wonder all these different channels, they say all these different things, and they have this different cast of people they talk about. Maybe um, this has something to do with the multiverse. You know, maybe there's so many different realities overlaid on, uh, on top of ours or through ours that... Uh, um, everybody is right in their own particular yeah. section. Well, this, this again is something that has intrigued me a long time as to why certain religious groups tenaciously have their own belief systems. And I would argue it's because everything that's in their world reinforces that belief because they egregorially create the environment whereby what they believe becomes true. Now, again, this is a known phenomenon in sociology. Um, uh, there's something called the Saper-Whorf hypothesis, which states that your language molds the way you perceive reality. And again, in the movie Arrival, that was one of the central things. I was delighted in the movie Arrival because it's the only time I've ever seen the Saper-Whorf hypothesis actually mentioned in a movie. Because I'd known about, I'd, I studied the Saper-Whorf hypothesis when I was at university way back in the um, the early to mid seventies. So it's the idea that we can collectively mold our reality to our own expectations. So when people see UFOs, is it because they're molding their reality to see UFOs? Does it mean they're hallucinating? No, it doesn't. For instance, we know that thousands of people saw the sun spin in the sky at, uh, at Fatima in Portugal in, what, 1916 or whatever it was, 1914. Clearly, this was a collective hallucination. But it was real because effectively, if thousands of people see the same thing, what does that say about consensual reality? Because the only reason we believe reality is consent is, is standard is because we all agree we're seeing the same thing. Right. If we all see the same thing, that is an hallucination. Now, is this then the power of the mind and how the mind really can create things? And again, in quantum physics, again, many worlds interpretation of Hugh Everett III, his 1957 PhD thesis, trying to explain Schrodinger's cat and try over the fact, this is interesting, this, Hugh Everett wrote this in order to get over the, uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of, of Max Born and, and Niels Bohr, who suggested there was a direct relationship between observation and reality and the consciousness had a direct relationship. In order to get over that, they created the many worlds interpretation. 
but the counter argument here is that the latest work that Stephen Hawking did before he died, he came up with something called the top-down hypothesis of quantum physics with a guy called Frank Hartle of CERN. And in this top-down hypothesis, they argue that the outcome of every decision that we all make is already encoded in, in an informational field out there. Every decision we make collapses the wave function to accommodate that decision. So it's all there in anticipation of a decision that's made by a conscious being, an unconscious being, who knows. But it means then that we all follow very different paths through the maze, very different paths, which accommodate our own expectations. And is this a much more sophisticated model than, than uh, the law of attraction? It's much more sophisticated than that, but there is an element of truth in that. And we carry this through. And we're creating this now. The group of us now, and the people in the chat room, the people are involved in my, the 10,000 people that are involved in my Facebook, we are creating this and we're carrying it through. My little group, when we meet, we, we say this all the time, it is just amazing the energy that we can create. And I think we're tipping on the edge of something so profoundly important here. Really, really important. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with Anthony Peak. We continue in our second part and get ready for some shamanism, pineal gland science, Egyptian lore, and how Anthony counters the ideas of Richard Dawkins and other scientists, and much more. As mentioned in the intro, as a bonus for AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon, I'll provide the first four episodes of our podcast venture, Schrodinger's Diary. In these, Anthony shared his ideas on the daemon, is there life after death, Philip K. Dick, and more on the Gnostics. Really amazing content. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feeds from AB Prime or Patreon that works in the podcast provider of your choice. So please become a member or Patreon and support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Go to thegodabovegod.com for means to assist and get the infernal rewards. Or just contact me. I can't do it without you. And if you've got holes in your pockets due to the monkey shines of Archons, just message me and I'll give you any show on the house. I know these are weird times and the alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever. Might be the only way to counteract the boot Yaldi Baldi has placed on the collective consciousness of humanity. So don't feel bad to ask for a full show. I give those away all the time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. 
We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.